Um, so as I said, we're into a series called The Life We Were Made For, and, um, and we're just going to pick it up from where we've left off for the last couple of weeks. Um, a couple of, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, um, I popped into a newsagent's, and um, I walked in, and, and then a big sign on the front of the till, it said, we don't accept Scottish £20 notes. And I was like, that's a bit harsh. What's the Scottish £20 note ever done wrong to you? And um, then I read underneath it, and it said, um, there's been lots of counterfeit notes, so we don't accept them anymore. And I was like, all right, fair enough, you know. And um, so I was intrigued. Do you know, there's um, 73,000 counterfeit notes have been taken out of circulation in the first six months of 2023. There we go. Worth about one and a half million pounds. Most of them were in this corner shot from the sounds of it, but, um, but there we go. You know, so um, anybody watch Fake or Fortune? All right, so I'm now boring and sad. But um, so Fake or Fortune is, oh, Pam. It's nice to have you back. Um, so um, Fake or Fortune is this program where um, Fiona Bruce and this guy called, I can't remember his name, Phil Mould, is it, or something like that, um, go looking for masterpieces of art that have been kind of lost over the years. And um, the basic premise of the show is that over an hour, it summarizes their investigation to whether or not this is actually a masterpiece or a fake. So, um, back in 2021, this guy called Nick Hopkinson, and I meant to ask Tim French, but he's not here this morning because he's an artist, and I don't know how to pronounce these names, so I'm going to get it completely wrong. Um, so, this guy rocks up with this art that he believes was a, a guardie, does that sound about right? Worth £10 million. So, that's what he thought it was. And the worst case scenario, it was a marishi. Sorry, massacre anybody online, um, worth £500,000. Okay, unfortunately, this was the verdict of the experts. After investigation, the paintings providence expert Charles Bennington gave his verdict on the piece. I've given this picture a lot of thought, he said. It doesn't have the distinctive touch of Mureshi or Gardi, both of whom are very individual and distinctive artists. I don't think it to be generally accepted as by either. So it was actually worth £20,000, which is still not bad, but that's 500 times less than the poor guy thought it was worth when he walked into the show. So it backfired a little bit. Um, to the untrained eye, even to an experienced art salesman, it was impossible to tell whether it was a fake or a masterpiece. However, to an expert, it was clear. This was not what it appeared. One method they use to kind of get under the skin of the paintings is x-rays. And um, they, another picture turned up, and this time they thought it was an, a Gainsborough, again, who I believe was a famous artist. And um, so this is the picture. So hopefully go back again, just one. Um, this was the picture. Looked really great. And um, then they x-rayed it, and this is what they saw underneath it. A portrait of a lady. So anyway, that kind of threw the kind of providence of this painting into doubt. And, um, and as it turns out, again, it was a fake. Because when they looked under the surface, they actually saw that it wasn't quite what they thought it was. It wasn't quite authentic. Sadly, this one was only worth about £6,000, rather than the lots of money they thought it was going to be worth. And then they found this one. And it turns out it is a masterpiece, 
worth £500,000. Don't judge a book by its cover, hey? Samuel was sent to find a new king for Israel. And he was sent to Jesse, and Jesse lined up his sons. And Samuel went through to choose a king. And the first one, again, I think it's Eliab, um, stood there before Samuel. And Samuel took a look at him and said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before, stands here before the Lord. He looked at this guy and thought, This is a king. This is the king for sure. But then God speaks. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, people look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. So why did God search for a new king? And what was his selection criteria? Well, let's skip back three chapters to Saul when he was king of Israel. Saul had been given commands by God. He'd been said, this is how you should be king. But he did not follow those commands. And this is Samuel's rebuke on behalf of God in 1 Samuel 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the commands the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. God was looking for a man after his own heart. He wasn't looking for external features, but rather a person with a good heart, a heart like his own. He wanted the real thing, authentic, not a counterfeit king. And David was far from perfect. You know, he made mistakes. He made big mistakes. But he was humble. He was surrendered to God. And he was repentant. His heart was genuine, even if his actions sometimes fell significantly short of the mark. You know, we are currently looking at this question. What, is li what life were we made for? What is our better story? The story God has written over all of our lives. And so today we're going to place ourselves like one of those pictures under the scrutiny of Jesus. Because just like that X-ray machine in Fake or Fortune, Jesus, God, does not look at the things that everyone else looks at. He looks beneath the surface at our heart. When I spoke a couple of weeks ago, um, and if you're kind of new and you want to kind of catch up on the series, you can actually either download a podcast or the, on YouTube, um, you can have a listen. Um, but when I spoke a couple of weeks ago, I looked at... Um, Jesus' greatest commandment that he gave his people. And he said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. So we explored what is the heart, what is the mind, and what is the soul. And the heart denotes a person's center of both physical and emotional, intellectual, moral activities. The soul is, a central, is central to the person, basically what it makes us human the very essence of who we are, and it lives on beyond our physical body. And the mind is the way of thinking. It is our attitude. 
It's the sum total of our whole mental and moral state of being. You know, so basically Jesus was saying, in everything you have, you know, we need to saturate our physical and emotional activities, what we do with our time, energy, and money in God. We need to saturate the very essence of who we are to our very core. It needs to move far beyond religion to our very core being centered on Jesus. And our every thought and attitude needs to be that of Jesus. We need our minds renewing to be in line with God. Jesus is basically saying, every part of you needs to be surrendered to Jesus. That's the greatest commandment, to love God with everything we have. And in this passage, again, one of the words Samuel uses is translated as heart. And the heart in this passage, it kind of captures a much broader meaning than the one that Jesus used, because he used mind and soul as well to kind of encapsulate everything. In this kind of passage, the heart is, is, is kind of the very essence, the very character, the very attitude of the person that's beneath the skin. Proverbs 4.23 explains that everything we do flows from the heart. It flows from our heart. It flows from the very core of who we are. So heart, soul, mind, it kind of, this heart word in Samuel captures all of those things. Luke 6.45 says this, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, what is beneath the skin? What is actually going on that nobody can see dictates actually who we are and how we behave. Our life reflects our hearts and our hearts are shaped by our minds and our our hearts then push out our actions. Um, I kind of, I'm a scientist, sorry for those of you that aren't, Um, but... um, (laughs) We have things called feedback loops in science, and, um, and so I'm going to suggest today that we have a discipleship feedback loop, and we're going to explore what that looks like. Paul, when writing to the church in Philippi, commanded us, compelled us to guard our minds. Nicola spoke about this last week when she was thinking around mental health, and this is from the message, Philippians 4.8. Summon it all up, friends. I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into a most excellent of harmonies. Paul in Romans 12 takes this idea of what we allow to fill our minds and and develops it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So we kind of got this kind of feedback loop that I've, um, hopefully there's a slide, that I just think is super helpful when we're thinking about our growth and our discipleship. Because it's what goes on in our hearts that shapes kind of who we are. You know, if you think around it, you know, what our mindset, the things we think about, how we 
approach life, our attitudes and our beliefs, they actually shape our hearts and our souls, the very core of who we are. You know, as Paul says, what we, what we focus on, what we meditate on, it, it kind of shapes the very sense of who we are. And then who we are then is played out in what we do. It's played out in our actions. And so we have this loop, and then what we do affects our mindset, which then shapes our heart, which then shapes our actions. And this, this growth, this discipleship goes on. And this is really kind of the model that Jesus gives us. What we believe what we think affects our hearts and our hearts then affects our actions and so on. A feedback loop. So as followers of Jesus, we need to learn to change our mindsets, to have our mindsets renewed. We need to learn how we shape our hearts to be like Jesus and how our actions can be that which pleases the Lord. And here's a cautionary note. Again, Paul helps us to understand what Jesus wants of each of us and his church in 1 Corinthians 3. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, and straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. You know, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that one day we will stand before Jesus and his eyes are like an x-ray machine. He will look beyond the surface, the superficial, the way our life looks to everyone around us and he will drill into our hearts. He will see the very core of who we are, what really matters to us, what we really love and worship and it will be tested with fire his judgment you know it's a stark image isn't it you know this fire of Jesus judgment coming upon our lives and what will be left but the great I love this passage because even in the in the judgment there is grace because even if we mess up our lives we escape the flames of judgment thanks to the grace of Jesus But let me ask you a question. Do you want your life to be burned up before your eyes as you come before Jesus? Or do you want that reward of well done, good and faithful servant? That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake in the way we choose to build and to develop our lives. Okay, so let's have a think around how this feedback loop works. And let's give an example. And I could have picked anything, any aspect of life, of our faith, to fit into this little pattern. But I'm going to talk about meeting together, about that command of never stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Because when we read the book of Acts in the early church, 
they never stopped meeting together. They met in the temple courts. I think it says daily in the temple courts, actually, but we're not going to go that far. But they met in the temple courts, and they met in people's homes, and they had food together, and they broke bread together. They never stopped meeting together. So that's the context of Hebrews 10, where the writer to the Hebrews writes this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another on, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That day of judgment where the fire of God will test our lives. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You know, one of my greatest concerns for the church in this season is this mindset of meeting together. You know, one of the legacies of this pandemic, of lockdowns especially, is that we fell out of the habit of meeting together, of being together. You know, some people never emerge from the pandemic. You know, there was some scary stat of almost like, I think it was like a third of people actually disconnected from church communities in that time. You know, and if they may be connected on a Sunday, they certainly didn't connect in life groups, in small groups. You know, research has shown that a couple of things, a couple of realities are now present in the church, in the West especially. Sunday attendance is on average below pre-pandemic levels. And this is kind of driven by two factors. As I said, people never re-emerge from the pandemic to in-person services. But also the frequency of people coming along has dropped as well. You know, anecdotally, we had about two-thirds of the church, so all of our database would come on any given Sunday before the pandemic. That's now less than half that would come on any given Sunday. You know, things have shifted. Small group attendance is significantly lower than it was before the pandemic. It's no longer a priority for a lot of people. You know, and one cause of this change is online services. And, you know, if you're watching online, you might be watching for a number of reasons. For health reasons, there might be stuff that means you can't actually get here in person. So don't take this as, as a rebuke, but it's an invitation. But online services are a challenge, are a problem. You know, there are now churches around the world that are inviting people, no matter which country they live in, to connect with them online and make that their church. It's never how it was meant to be. That's not what church is, to connect online on your sofa and watch somebody thousands of miles away preach a sermon. You see, I think it's problematic because I strongly believe we are commanded to meet together regularly not just on our own for our own benefit, but to encourage and spur one another on. Secondly, by not meeting together, by not being part of a local church family, we don't contribute our gifts, passions, we don't invest our time, energy in building others up, and we don't grow ourselves. And do you know what? You just cannot replicate being in the presence of God in worship. You just can't do it anywhere other than in a gathered environment like this. So let's have a think about this loop, but let's think about it from a negative perspective first. So imagine our mindsets post-pandemic are that we no longer think that regular, me, regularly meeting together as a church family is a priority. 
that we can be a Christian on our own or on our sofa, engaging with online church. I'm going to warn you, I am extreming this. I'm kind of, you know when you make things, say things for effect? This is one of those moments. And this mindset shapes our hearts. So all of a sudden, we become a consumer. You know, we don't like what that church said online, so I'm going to watch another church next week. Um, we become self-reliant and independent. We don't need anybody else. We're kind of king of our own lives. We become comfortable. And dare I say, even selfish. I can watch church whenever I want. I can fit it around my life. But maybe we become a little bit lazy. I don't need to serve, invest in others. I can just consume. Maybe we become stingy. I'm not going to give my time, energy, and money. You know, I'm just going to watch this service, or I might choose not to. You know, what on the surface seems to make sense was very practical and important in the pandemic can become pretty destructive to our faith and our hearts. And this mindset that shifts and shapes our hearts and impacts our actions, you know, we become disconnected, isolated. We stop serving, contributing, growing. You know, we probably live out, fill our lives with worldly things rather than godly things. And then this impacts our mindset some more, which impacts our heart, which then changes our actions. And before we know it, over the months and years, something in our faith, we get lukewarm. We grow cold in our faith. What about a positive feedback loop? How does that work? Well, let's say we decide in our hearts that Getting to church on a Sunday, being part of a life group, is a non-negotiable. We're going to get there, we're going to be worshipped. Whether we feel like it or not, we're going to rock up as best we can every time to bring our worship to the Lord. So that's our mindset. So rain or shine, wind or storm, we're going to get ourselves to church. And when that's our mindset, then something happens to our hearts. You know, we become worshippers. We recognize that we don't come to church just for our own benefit, but primarily to worship Jesus for that audience of one. You know, that's why we come. First and foremost, to build up our, to worship Jesus and to build up his church. And we become dependent. You know, these guys around, we, we have community pastors because actually we are dependent upon each other. We can't do life on our own. We need to be encouraged to love and good deeds. We need each other. We, our heart learns to become convenienced, to put God first and to put others first. We become gracious and generous. We learn to be givers of our time, energy, and money. See, what on the surface seems inconvenient, do you know what sometimes Church is inconvenient. There's other stuff we can do with our time. What seems inconvenient is actually life-giving because it builds us up. It changes our hearts. It gives us life. Our mindset changes our hearts and our hearts impacts our actions. That's how discipleship works. 
We become connected, you see, when this is our attitude. We learn to prefer others. We learn to serve. We become contributors, not consumers. We grow in faith rather than see our faith diminish. We fill our lives with God, with kingdom stuff rather than worldly stuff. And this impacts our mindset. And this moves us towards God. We become more godly. Our hearts are shaped to be more like him. And our actions become more like Jesus. Positive feedback, discipleship, loop, whatever you want to call it. This is how it works. Why does Paul say we need to focus on renewing our minds? Because he understands that this is how it works. And you can apply this to anything. And of course I'm extreme in it for effect, you know. But what about, I don't know, what should we say? Your attitude towards money and wealth. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. What about your attitude towards your prayer life? Or how you engage with scripture? Or your attitude towards the poor and how you serve those who are in need? Maybe to the mission of Jesus. How you treat your spouse or your children. You, know, you name it. Whatever it is, big or small, your mind impacts your heart, which impacts your actions. So if you think your spouse exists to serve you, then you're going to become quite a selfish spouse yourself. If your spouse exists to love you and to cherish you, then you're going to become selfish. But if you exist to love them, then you're going to become a lovely, honoring spouse. If your children are kind of irritating and just stop you doing stuff you want to do, you're not going to love them, are you? But if you realize that your children are a gift, that they've been given to you to love them and to cherish them and to build them up, you're going to be an amazing parent. You name it, whatever your mindset will impact your hearts, which will impact your actions. Church, I just really want to encourage us to take our discipleship seriously. To think about how our lives are shaped and what we prioritize. You see, Jesus has a better story for our lives. He has a life that we were made for. But it, it isn't just laid out on a plate for us. It's not just like a switch that suddenly we have this wonderful life. It is a journey. We are a work in progress. We are the project, as somebody once said. And we get a role to play in the way our lives are shaped, the choices we make. So I need to come into land because it's getting close to 12 o'clock and we need to do some ministry. But how are you doing in this? Do you even think this way? Do you think about your discipleship and your growth? Are there areas of your life, your mindset that you need to change? Do you need your heart transformed to be shaped, to be like Jesus? Let's have a minute just to think about that. Come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, reveal our hearts where we're at with you.
There are some lies that we believe. We believe we're too busy. Life's too complicated. Maybe the lie that we'll, we'll sort it out next year or even next month. You know, we just can't do it in this moment. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. You need to sort your mind out now. Renew your mind and let me change your heart so that you become more in line with me. And so maybe if that resonates, maybe you think, well, actually, you know, I have, that's the way I think. You know, I'm life's too busy. I just cannot sort my, sort my discipleship out now. Then, uh, Holy Spirit, would you just come and challenge that thought? That in itself is a mindset. So come, Holy Spirit. We are responsible for our own discipleship. The church exists to encourage, to build up, to challenge like this. But actually we are responsible for how we respond to Jesus. So in this moment, let's just recognize that. For some of you, you might need to say sorry to Jesus. That you've just not taken all of his sacrifices seriously. Let's just have some quiet. Come, Holy Spirit.